0: you. Mm-hmm. special episode of the new Outriders podcast. I am your host, Telalan. With me, as always, is my co-host, Roxanne. How are you doing, Roxy?
1: I'm wonderful. How are you?
0: I'm great. And my other co-host, Lord Lassarian. How are you doing, Lass? I'm doing great. Thanks. And we have a a very special guest this week, Kevin Van Ord, host of the GameSpot Gameplay Podcast at GameSpot.com, senior editor at GameSpot, uh, mostly dealing with the review section. Thank you for being here, Kevin.
2: Hey, it's my pleasure. I don't have any fancy name to offer, um, so I'm afraid I, I stick out like a sore thumb amongst uh, your your amazing your amazing handles.
0: Well, you know, if anybody wants to follow Kevin on Twitter, you can find him at Fiddlecub. I'm sure there's a story behind that name.
2: Yeah, it, it, not not much of a story actually. The the fiddle part just comes from uh, I was a, a violinist and a music major in college, so that's that's where the fiddle comes. Uh, Fiddlecub. Uh, the fiddle part comes from, and the uh, the cub part just comes from the fact that I'm really hairy. So, <laughs> that it's was not actually that interesting of a story, as it, as it turns out. Well, that was pretty good. Yeah, I thought that was pretty <laughs> that good. Gives, that yeah. gives
0: you a lot in common with Felicia Day, violent players, music music majors who make your living on the internet.
2: Is she hairy too?
0: Not so no. much. <laughs> oh. Okay. okay Now, because you are, you know, you senior editor at Gamespot, you're you're with the reviews team for the most part. I want to ask you about the reviews process for an MMO because it has to be it has to be strange and a little different reviewing an MMO than it would be something like Resident Evil Six.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, it is. It's time consuming. Number one, it takes a long time um, to review. Even you know, um, even some of the most shallow MMOs take a take a long time to really see as much um, content as you possibly can. <laughs> Um, and in fact, our, our internal policy is to review um, 30 hours before committing to a review. But typically, I spend maybe 65 to 70 hours before uh, before getting to the point where I'm I'm ready to say, "Hey, let's go ahead and and slap a score on this thing and say a bunch of words." Wow, that is
0: that's like playing through all three Mass Effect games. <laughs> that, that's actually true. <laughs> where you've <laughs> got enough is. hours in. Kevin, uh, do you do all of that you
3: know hands on personally or, or are you assisted by intern staff i mean do you
0: yeah,
2: I do all of that um when when you're reviewing a game it, it really is your opinion and your your um analysis that people are looking for so i I wouldn't really be doing the game much of a favor if I was getting a hand from others, so yeah that's 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 all me
0: wow,
1: wow, that's pretty amazing.
0: Now, when you've done when you're done playing the game and you you write your review, is there a, a peer review process among you know the other writers at Gamespot, or does it basically hang around your neck?
2: Now there, well, there is a peer review process uh, typically, and this is for every review at Gamespot. Uh, the review goes to our copy edit department, and it gets copy edited for grammar and and uh, flow and whatnot. And she always adds uh, a bunch of notes about. Uh, what did you actually mean by this? Um, and then we fix that up, send it around to the rest of the reviews team, in the, fact, the entire editorial team, and then everybody um, puts in their, their two cents. And uh, after all that, then it will ultimately get published. But only when we're comfortable. Um, it, it can be tough because, of course, not everybody has played the game. So it is possible um, on those rare occasions for something incorrect to slip through. But that that kind of thing's pretty rare. Usually, the peer review process is about making sure that everybody understands the points, making sure that the uh, that uh, pesky number that gets associated with the text more or less seems to match the tone and the information of the text, and and so forth.
0: And how do you balance the the objective and the subjective in a review? For example, um, playing through a game like L.A. Noir, I can see why why some people loved that game, why it got higher review scores at a lot of places. It's a beautifully created world. There are some very interesting puzzle-solving mechanics, you know, if you're not just going to go online and read your way through a walkthrough. Um, the, the conversation system was, you know, wholly unique, but personally I found the game um, about as boring as I could find a game. You know, how do you, how do you balance the, the objective, you know, view of a game with the subjective feel of a game that could be vastly different between two people?
2: But it's that's that's a real trick, right? Um, to me, the objective part and the and the part where um, you're always hearing the word bias kind of being thrown around by people that don't really understand what it what it means in relation to to game reviews. To me, avoiding bias means that you're looking solely at the experience in front of you, how you feel about the developer, how you feel about the publisher, how you feel about how the game's been marketed, et cetera, et cetera. None of that has anything to do with with the review process. Um, so that's that's where the the biggest most important objective part comes in to me is is avoiding all of that hubbub surrounding the game. Have as little expectation as possible um and and just sort of leave your feelings about a publisher or developer at the door before going in um, but in terms of of the rest, everything is going to be subjective to a certain extent um that's you know, if, if it weren't, um, then there'd be no need for game reviews at all, because everybody would feel the exact same way about every single game. So that would be pretty boring, um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so we all come into it with our own, with our own experience and, what, you know, what's important to us. Um, you bring up L.A. Noir as a great example, because uh, Carolyn Pettit reviewed it here at GameSpot, and she, she clearly loves it. And, you know, one of the reasons she loves it is because of its sense of place, its sense of style, for its story and so on and so forth, um, I can't stand La Noir. <laughs> and uh, it, we've we've had some really interesting discussions about it. And a lot of it just comes down to what are the parts of the game that spoke to you, and how important are those things to the overall experience? So for Caro, you know, the atmosphere was almost the entire game in and of itself. Um, for me, I couldn't get past a lot of uh, a lot of the the tonal inconsistencies. In the writing, in the voice acting, and so on and so forth, to the point where it just seemed like a, an incredibly surreal experience with the most insane lead character ever created. So,
0: but again, yeah. I, I mean, Cole Phelps could go from zero to psychopath in one conversation line.
2: Yeah. Um, It's funny, actually, that game made me really appreciate what Bioware does with Mass Effect and and with their games in general, because you could say something that's Paragon one moment and Renegade the next, and it still feels like it's a conversation, it it feels like it's dialogue coming still from the same person, even though they they could potentially be very different sorts of outcomes um, for for those uh, conversations, so... But anyway, it's you know in terms of objective versus subjective, there's no real perfect answer to that, um, and I think part of it comes down to what you want from a review, whether you want uh, an overview of what the mechanics are in the game without a whole lot of analysis, or do you actually want true criticism? Um, and I would say that over time, we've left behind at GameSpot this idea of games as just being an overview of, of a bunch of mechanics, and gone more and, and been able to move into more of a, you know, critical depth and analytical depth of those.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, earlier this fall, you know, I was, you know, look, I, I clicked through at least most of the reviews, unless it's a game I'm truly, truly not interested in. But, you know, the the new Madden came out, and I saw that, that Tom McShay was the reviewer on it, and I'm like, I'm thinking back to, you know, GameSpot gameplay episodes or... Um, the the hotspot episodes, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, should Tom be reviewing this? Because I've heard him, you know, rail against EA before for their yearly up rates. (laughs) Their yearly updates that have, like, nothing in the game. But his review was entirely fair. So, you know, I guess that, you know, that is something you guys are good at. But, yeah, I was just, you know, I got to that review, and I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm not sure Tom is the right person to be reviewing this one.
2: Yeah, I think we're all pretty good at at sort of leaving behind all of those sorts of feelings at the door um, and really looking at the game on its own merits. Um, To me, the harder harder it becomes, it it becomes a lot harder when you have more games that are, you know, considered so-called art games. I think the more a game is about, for example, narrative, the more personal a game experience is. So if you look at something like Journey, um, or something like a lot of other games that have that are really more about the immersion, about the experience, about uh, about being in their world, and less about actual mechanics and things that you can really call out as being good or being bad in that objective sense. The more games are like that, the harder it is to really latch onto what it really means to be objective in the first place, because it either works for you or it doesn't. Um, I think Journey, for example, works. For, probably for the, the, the large majority of people that play it. They get something out of it. And I think that you get into experiences like that, and that's where it, a review almost is entirely subjective, because you can talk about mechanics, but games like that really aren't about the way it controls, or about the, you know, you're, you're not shooting things. They're not, not things to really pick apart in terms of, of mechanical success. And so it really comes down to: Does this work for me on an emotional level or on an intellectual level? And if so, why? Or if not, why not?
0: That is very interesting. Um, I'm, glad, I'm actually glad I have that insight. Um, going back and I'll, I reread some of your reviews today, and you know, I think that that fits in very well. Um, another mechanical question I have, as far as reviews go, is: oh, sure. um, Is reviewing like expansion or downloadable content different than reviewing? A game itself, you know, especially in the in the MMO space, expansions are, you know, everything. Every game's got an expansion every couple of years. Um, do you guys tackle that the same way, where you pour in all the hours, or do you just you do end up taking some things for <laughs> granted because the game's been out for so long already?
2: Oh, that can be really hard too, and it, it sort of depends on on the game and the nature of of the add-on. So something like an MMO expansion can be pretty difficult to review, um, and, and part of the reason why is typically when I review an MMO, I play the MMO um, for how many other hours, and I write the review, and then personally I might play a little bit longer depending on whether I actually liked it or not. You know, I played Star Trek Online. When I reviewed it, I was done. I didn't want to go back, um, but on the other hand, with something like Guild Wars 2 um, or even Secret World, I wanted to keep going and play a lot more, so I did, but ultimately the nature of my job is that I have to leave games behind because there's so many more games to get to. So MMO expansions can be tricky because, you know, say a year passes and we jump back into an MMO expansion, it's very tricky to know how much in, in the product that we have now, in the expansion, how much of that is, is new and how much of it has actually been part of the ongoing updating and patching process of the game. Somebody that plays the game day in, day out, week in and week out, has a better understanding than your typical critic who has probably played the game, left it behind, and is then returning to it. Um, So that can be really tough, especially, let's take, you know, look at World of Warcraft, for example. You know, a lot of the things that they're, you know, that's going into the expansion, they flip their switch two weeks before, and a lot of those things then immediately go into place you know, for everybody, regardless of whether they have the expansion or not. So, you know, it's real tricky to know how much of this is actually part of the review process for the expansion. After all, it's it's part of a major update that everybody experiences. So, you know, usually we look at that as a time to review not just the expansion, but also the way the game has grown since its since its release or since its last expansion. Um, with smaller add-ons, it's a little bit easier. You can look at it as, you know, what does this actually bring to the game? If it's more of the same, typically we're not so much into that. You know, it can be a great, you know, let's let's say it's a great game like Skyrim or something, but the expansion comes out and it's just really more Skyrim. That's not very interesting. So chances are the, the, the add-on's not going to be praised all that much, but it, you know, especially because the reason Skyrim works is because it's big and everything works together. Um, you isolate small things about a game, um, and then suddenly all those flaws can be really, really apparent. Or just you know, having three hours of the same thing you already played, you know, ninety hours of that's not that's not particularly compelling. So um, typically, when we look at an add-on, it's it's about uh, what it brings to the game, um, whether it's actually something that you want to uh, something you want to go back to the game for, whether it's, you know, if it's more of the same, it's not really that much reason to go back, right? But if it's something that's actually different on its own terms, then, yeah, that's that's probably something more recommendable. So I don't even know if I'm answering the question. I'm just rambling at this point. No, it's well, very, have, very good. Go um, ahead, Rosie. I
1: have a question. Um, sure. Just on something that um, you just said about having to leave games behind that you really enjoyed playing. Do I mean? Do you really miss that about just having you know a normal job where you know you go to work eight to five and then come home and then play you know whatever you're you're really enjoying or you know what I mean? (laughs) I I
2: absolutely do. You know, first world problem, right? Um, If I'm I'm playing so many games that I can't possibly stick with the ones I love. Um, But it, it is sort of the nature of of what I do and and. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover between my work time and my leisure time. So I go home and play games that I'm playing for work. So for example, this weekend I'll probably be playing Akanero um, for work. Although there's maybe there's a good chance that I would be playing it for, you know, for on my own free time anyway. Um, but there are times where I think, gosh, I wish I could really just give all of my time to this one game. I mean, there was a time in my life where before I was working in this in the industry, I would be subscribed to two or three MMOs at one time and playing all of them because that's what I did in my spare time. Um, now I, I just don't get that kind of luxury because time is, you know, time is uh, at a premium. And so I use a lot right. of my free time for, for stuff that I'm just doing at work. But, yeah, I, I wish I was playing more Guild Wars 2 right now or more Planetside 2, games that I really, really love. Um, but... You know, all too often, you know, I, I might be able to jump in and play an hour or half an hour or something like that, but all things considered, um and, and part of that too is because of the nature of all these games I, I review. I review so many RPGs that um they're just time consuming. They're long. Right. So if I were playing a bunch of shooters for work, then maybe I could afford to go home and play and play RPGs at night, but uh I, I tend to get bogged well, down by all these long games
1: right and and you know, as my type of gaming is i'm a more of a social gamer, um and I'm really not interested in you know games that I only play by myself, so you know it's hard to imagine i mean most people would think your job would be like the dream job, you know most gamers would love it, but you know I think I would miss that social interaction i don't know if you have a lot or if you do that, you know when you're trying to um um, review um, expansions and things like that, but um, you know, I was just wondering, you know, um, if you missed it because I know I would.
2: I miss I miss the online interactions and the social aspect of that when I'm playing certain games, and and that's part of what I miss when I'm not playing an MMO. Um, luckily, because I work in the office and because I'm surrounded by people that I that I talk with and chat with all day, um, I've got. I've got that kind of social outlet um, during the work hours. So even if I'm playing an, an offline game, you know, I've got, you know, other kinds of socialization going on. But I, I do miss okay. that aspect of of MMOs when I'm not playing them. And that that's part of the sad thing, too, is when when I leave a game behind, you know, I'm not just leaving that game. I'm also leaving people that I've gotten to know um, and, and a oh, whole social yeah. experience. So I, I do miss that stuff when I don't have it.
1: So do you, um, when you're, like, reviewing, say, an expansion and it's an online game, do you get to know people and, and get their feelings and thoughts about, like, people that have played that game um, oh, yeah. continuously? Oh, cool. It's,
2: it's sort of inescapable, um, in, in a sense, because when you're in an MMO, um, you're, you're going to be hearing a lot about what people think anyway, and especially when you're in a guild, um, which, which typically I would, would always be when playing an MMO. I, w- I would be part of a guild, and, and people will talk about their feelings about the game and what works for them and what doesn't, and and, and and sort of part of the experience. And, you know, a lot of that stuff, you know, all that stuff gets filtered through my own feelings, um, and um, there are always going to be disagreements. Um, you know, so if I'm playing Planet Side 2, some people are going to be... Si- you know, talking about, uh, hey, infantry is underpowered, and other people will say, hey, actually I wish vehicles were more important, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, I I definitely hear what people say. And I do, you know, there is a certain amount of collaboration in the sense that, um, you know, if I'm not sure about how I feel about something or if I want to get somebody else's take, um, I have people, you know, within the guild or or within the game that that can offer me their you know, their two cents. Um, But that even works, you know, for for other kinds of games here in the office. If I'm sort of, you know, pondering something and I need somebody else's feedback, um, sometimes there will be somebody else in the office that's playing it, um, like a game guides editor, um, and then we can sort of talk about our feelings about something, and I can further cement, you know, my own analysis by doing that.
0: Right, Um, right. I had a, a, another a me- mechanical review question, but I think you you pretty much covered it in in your other answers. Um, a lot of MMO sites do what they call like reviews in progress. Yep. Um, you know they'll you know this week we're going to review these three features of this new release. Next week we'll you know when we've played more we'll hit up these three. And I. Based on your answers now, I sort of understand why GameSpot doesn't do that because invariably every one of those reviews I think I've ever read is very, very mechanical and focused on the systems and you know that kind of stuff and the expansion <coughs> and it's really for the game to insiders it's not like you said you know the you you know you get the game, you get the whole feel of the game while you play it, so I mean you know with the way you've explained your reviews, that simply wouldn't work at GameSpot.
2: MMO coverage is super hard. Um, we, oh gosh, and, and the way to, how to cover them on an ongoing basis is very hard. And we've, we've done ongoing review, um, we've done review in progress stuff, and, and typically I'll try to do um, a pre-review write-up before the review comes out. Um, IGN actually does really long ones sometimes, depending on, on the game and depending on whether the, the author has the kind of resources and, and time to be able to give to that. It's a lot harder for somebody like us because somebody like mmrpg.com they're specialists, and they can, they can really focus on one genre, and they have people that can truly be an expert on that one game and continue to play that game and be an expert on it. Because we're generalists, it's a lot harder to do that kind of coverage. And um, you know, to me, I feel like we we do that sort of basic coverage at first. We get to uh, you know say here's our review, um, but then it's hard then to be to continue to be an expert on one given game because we're expert on all ga- experts on all games together. Um, but not on one particular one, and that can be really hard. I mean, even outside of MMOs, um, you look at something like uh, fighting games, online shooters, things like that. These are these are games that have online communities. These are games that you know a week in, people can have completely broken a particular mechanic in a fighting game, for example. Um, stuff that we wouldn't find in the review process because we're not spending. 40 hours online um, Trying our best to exploit every single Mechanic in advance so Yeah it's, it's stuff like that it can be Can be super difficult to uh, To manage
0: Now I know you get a lot of pressure From from readers To re-review games You know after updates have been made um, That kind of thing you know And a good example is You reviewed the boxed copy of League of Legends Which is now one of the biggest games <laughs> in the world And it got a six <laughs> Um, yeah. On your review now, you have you know an after the fact update. You know the review evaluated the retail box copy since it's you know now a free to play Ballerina. But I mean, I know you get a lot of pressure to do re reviews from people. Um, but has it ever gotten to the point where you actually really really wanted to do a re review?
2: In in a sense, yes. I mean that has happened where uh, a game has grown and it would be nice to go back and say, hey, we're we're all back now. We're gonna we're gonna totally just. Uh, you know, sort of replace what was here before with something new. And uh, unfortunately, the system we have in place doesn't really support that. And it's actually very hard, I think, for any website to support that to a certain extent. Um, one, of my, one of my worries, and, you know, we, we actually discuss this all the time about whether it's time to just simply go back and re-review or add a new review, um, but there are a lot of complications to that. Number one is, how can, how can we do that and, and be fair to all games? So, for example, if we go back and look at League of Legends again and decide that this is worthy of a re-review and we, we write a new review for it, um, then is that being fair to every other single game that has also been improved and updated um, in 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 the years that it's been out, or the months, or even the days that it has been out. You know how how do we fairly apply that kind of rule across the board? And, and the answer is simple: you can't. Um, and that means that any given publication is going to have to pick and choose what games it's going to return to and what games it's not, because there's there's it's a never-ending battle with with every single game that's ever been made and, and updated. You know, you can't apply that that kind of you know re coverage across the board. Otherwise you'd have staffs of, of hundreds of people trying to, to maintain some kind of order.
0: Yeah, and it might even be even even worse with the fan reaction. You know, oh, it, would, yeah. it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be why aren't you re reviewing this, it'd be why haven't you done it yet? Um, you've already done it once, but now you need to do it again. Right.
2: You know, um, why did you do this game but not this game? You know, you know, fine, you did League of Legends, so how come you haven't updated Heroes of New Earth? Or how come, you know, this or how come that? How come you left Demigod behind that game so much better? And, and, and so on and so forth. So it's, I think it's a trick for any publication now and, and going forward is how do we cover these games in a fair way? And how do we do it so that um, we're telling you what it's like to play right now? And, gosh, there's there's no there's no easy answer to, to any of that. There are other considerations, too. Like, what does that mean for, um, for example, Metacritic? Because, you know, I, I don't care about Metacritic per se, but publishers care about Metacritic. So what happens when we review, You uh, use League of Legends as a, as a great example, what happens if we review League of Legends now? And that 6 shows up on Metacritic, and that is now forever the score that's going to show up on Metacritic for that game, regardless of what happens later. So we could go back and re-review that game, but, uh, you know, then let's say we give League of Legends an 8 a year later. and But Metacritic's always going to have that 6.0, because that's the way Metacritic functions. And then the question is, you know, publishers are then coming to, you know, publications saying, you know, hey, League of Legends has an 8, but Metacritic has it as a 6. Um, what are you going to do about that? So that's it's a tricky situation for pretty much everybody.
1: Well, and I think the assumption, too, would be that games get better, you know, if they have the support and the development, um, they get better over time.
2: Yeah, in theory. Um, yeah, in theory. And that hasn't always been the case. Some games have been broken before they've been refixed. Um, I don't know. Vanguard, I remember its first major, its first major update for, uh, Vanguard Saga of Heroes, busted the game. Um, so, you know, what do we do now? Do we go back and say, hey, we've, you know, we're gonna re review this now after the first update, and now the game's broken? Um, I think the trick is gonna be, and I think that the answer is gonna be, you know, choose what games are gonna be most important and have some kind of timeline or understand when the biggest updates are going to come, and then revisit them. Sometimes that might mean, nowadays, when the game goes free-to-play, that might be a perfect time to go back and revisit the game and and recover um, that kind of thing. Eurogamer does a really good job of it, I think, for example. So for Old Republic, they had their Old Republic review, and then once it went free-to-play, they went back, and they re-reviewed it as a free-to-play game, and it was... It got excoriated. It it was, uh, you know, simply... They simply didn't handle the free-to-play aspect of the game very well. So you have a game that got, you know, pretty much praise upon release get completely destroyed, you know, a year later when it went free-to-play at Eurogamer, so...
0: Now, you reviewed... I think these are probably the four biggest MMO releases of the last year. Uh, The Old Republic, Terra, The Secret World, and Guild Wars 2. Um... I just want to talk, touch a little bit on each one. I want to start with Terra. Um, okay. You guys had a, a brief mention in your, your last GameSpot like, gameplay episode. I think it was uh, Jens, I think yeah. Anderson from DCUO, yeah. said that um, you know, he would be uncomfortable playing Saints Row the Third in front of his wife. That's how I felt about Terra. The, <laughs> the combat system in that game, I will say, is the best I've played in an MMO, and I've played all those games now. Um, including Guild Wars 2. I think Terra's is fantastic. It's the closest to a third-person action game that an MMO has gotten, but I just can't get over the fact that I would be embarrassed to play that game in front of my wife or in front of my mother. It's just it's practically obscene with the way they, they designed and outfitted those characters.
2: It really is, isn't it? Um, that's, that's actually tough too from a, <laughs> a review's perspective. Like how much, how important is that kind of thing going to be in the, in the, in that process? Like that sort of, um, you know, theme and tone and, uh, and, and those kinds of aspects outside of mechanics. But anyway, I'm, I'm probably going off into a tangent, but. I mean, uh, I, I,
0: have, I have trouble explaining it to people because, you know, revealing outfits and objectified women have been a staple of the gaming industry for a long time, but, I mean, there's a line. There's there's a line, and I think Terra is well past it. Um, Like I said, I think it's the best combat system I've ever played in an MMO. Um, Based on your review, I think you know your review came out well before Guild Wars 2 came out, but I think you know that's probably pretty close for you. No,
2: yeah, I think Terra um, probably has the best combat um, of an MMO I've played, certainly in recent memory. now, granted, there are always those those niche MMOs out there that uh, perhaps I haven't played. Although I like to think that I at least try try most MMOs, um, and and that's definitely the closest that I think uh, an MMO has gotten to really making you feel part of the combat in, instead of that sort of removed hot bar way that most MMOs manage. Even Guild Wars Two isn't quite as uh, tact, you know, as as you know, you don't really have that kind of feel. It's that kind of moment-to-moment feel. Guild Wars is sort of halfway between,
0: yeah, of the the traditional action bar and then something like Tara. Um, that's all we need to say about Terra. Nobody in our guild other than me, I think, has ever played it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like that game.
1: Recommendation?
0: I, I liked that. I, I actually liked that game. It just it made me uncomfortable, um, and that's not a position I want to be in. I'm no, totally I
2: totally get it. Tool yeah. for
0: that. The Secret World. I had. I had huge hopes for this game before it came out. Everything that they were showing and demoing looked wonderful. Um, I was turned off by their initial business model. You touched on it in your review. They had a subscription fee and a cash shop where you could buy customization items. Other games have had subscription fees and cash shops before, but you always earned credit towards the shop from your subscription. And The Secret World didn't, and it was... The first case in my memory of like just a game double dipping like that, and it just put me off, so no matter how good it was i wasn 't going to play it it just it, it bothered me um, now that they 're they're by to play. I actually have a copy, and I 've played a little bit of it and it's it 's got some rough edges that it would have been nice if they'd worked out, but I guess that's sort of when it comes to mmos that sort of fun comes m o now but it's a it 's a really different game and it's really different for an MMO. I mean, how did you feel about it?
2: It was um, it was one of my top my personal top ten games of the year, um, and and one of the reasons for that is because it is doing something different than than other MMOs do, and it, it's actually one of my biggest irritations. I'll, I'll throw this in as an aside: is is when I read you know, comments and whatnot on reviews or on news articles from people suggesting that, oh, it's just another MMO, all MMOs are the same, and so on and so forth. And I think that The Secret World is um, a great example of how all MMOs are not cut from the same cloth. And that game has elements of, you know, traditional adventure games and um, other, you know, elements like that that really make it stand apart. So I, I like
0: that game a lot <laughs> Some of the the built-in sort of metagaming elements Where it's got, you know, the, the in-game web browser That takes you to websites that have been set up Specifically to to solve puzzles in the game Where the website is like part of the puzzle And it's just, it's, it's a very different experience And um, now that it's that it's buy-the-play instead of subscription-based I'm hoping that more people pick it up Because, you know, Funcom doesn't launch games very well In, in my experience, uh, Anarchy Online was a complete mess uh, Conan did not do so hot on launch, and Secret World didn't do so well. But over time, they do fix all their games, so I'm hoping people give that one a try. Um, next on the list is, is Star Wars The Old Republic. And, you know, you touched Euro, Eurogamer just destroyed them for their free-to-play in, in implementation. And I think this, this is something that changes based on how you come at the game. Um, I'm playing through this with my brother right now. And he's playing through it from the perspective of it's KOTOR 3. It's Knights of the Old Republic 3. He doesn't care about the PvP or the flashpoints or the operations. He's going to play through the quest from 1 through 50, and he doesn't have to pay anything to do that. So from his perspective, the Star Wars The Old Republic free-to-play is fantastic because he doesn't have to pay anything. He's basically getting KOTOR 3. It's voice acted, it's scripted, there's cutscenes, It's it's got everything. But once you look at it like an MMO... You know the fact that you have to rebuy access to operations every week if you want to raid, whereas you know the comparison there is basically every other game that's gone free to play. You buy that once and it's yours.
2: Yeah, th- that game suffers from that that terrible, terrible specter um, of expectation and what it is that you want out of a particular game. And uh, I actually really, really liked Star Wars: The Old Republic. And over time, it became the very popular sort of bashing. Um, you know, it's a very popular game to bash. Um, sort of going up there with, um, I don't know, Mass Effect Three and Dragon Age Two, and it sort of joined those those Bioware games that people, um, for whatever reason, just weren't very fond of. And so it was very easy to to pick up on what Bioware did with that game and, and sort of um, clobber it. Um, because of because of what it did, and uh, I actually rather liked it. And uh, it's always very unusual to me when somebody says, "Oh my gosh, I played, I bought this game, and I played 150 hours, and now I don't have any reason to play anymore, so I feel ripped off." And my my first response is always, "Really?" You know, and I get that MMOs come with a certain Expectation. There's a a different expectation that what you're getting isn't just a 100-hour game, but you're getting, you know, you're getting an entire world that's that's that in theory should have enough to keep you there for some time to come, um, outside of whatever story it tells and outside of the the level grind. You expect, you know, a kind of post-game content and so on and so forth. But I think um, for what it was, and I feel the same way about maybe DCUO. Is is for what it was, you know, that that path. Made it worth it. So even if you just play for the free month and don't play anymore, I, I think it's okay for for a game like that to give you one hundred, you know, 100, 150 good hours of play before you feel like leaving it behind. And Old Republic is one of those games for me where it's like I think it's okay, you know, to, to do what it did because it was certainly it was certainly more unique than people gave it credit for.
3: Well, I, I think you're right about the expectations aspect of, of Old Republic, only because I feel like the expectations were so unbelievably high. I'm not sure what game company could have delivered on those expectations without disappointing
2: somebody. It was the most expensive game ever made, right? So yeah. everybody's going to assume that this is going to be the, the most incredible, fantastic, amazing um, game you know, it's the only game you'll ever want to play and it's gonna have incredible stories, but it's also gonna keep going forever and ever and, and so on and so forth. There's there's no way to live up to that. Spore, another great example of a game that people had so much expectation of that once it finally came out and it and it wasn't the the great amazing um, life changing experience that yeah. people <laughs> wanted. Yeah. That uh that, That's why, as a reviewer, I tend to avoid a lot of pre-release coverage. Um, certain things you can't avoid, because people are going to talk about it, and, you know, I'm in the industry, I'm going to know things. Um, but typically, um, when it comes to specific things, I, I try to just not read a lot of stuff in advance. I try to avoid whatever I can avoid, so that when I go into it, I go into it fresh. I don't, you know, I know only what I need to know, and uh, I don't have any kind of... Uh, you know, personal stake in whether or not the game is good or not. So it it's worked out for me yeah. pretty well.
0: Ex- expectations is is an interesting you know conversation right. because Blizzard made a a ten million selling failure that came out this year. And you know if you look at if you listen to the right people in Diablo yeah. three, um, you, know, you know ten million ten million copies sold. You know all on PC. It's probably the biggest PC game. You know sixty dollar box copy maybe. In, I doubt very much they look at it as, as a failure I doubt very much they look at it as a failure, but the just the community that surrounded that game after the release was just vicious and you know I only played Diablo Two once, I played it through until the end I stopped, and you know i didn't i wasn't i didn't play it for years, and you know I played Diablo three and I finished it i 'm like that was brilliant. You know, I did not see, you know, what happened at the end before you fight Diablo. I did not see that coming. You know, I just, I thought the game's brilliant. But, yeah, just the expectations, everybody, you know, you know, games as a service. They wanted that game to last forever, but.
3: Well, is that is that, Kevin, do you think that that's kind of the trend we're seeing with, uh, I mean, we can, we can kind of lay these expectation games at the, sort of squarely at the feet of the players, can we not? It's almost as if we've been chasing a high for the last eight years. You know, everybody hooked themselves up to. You know, feeding tubes and, and and didn't move for a couple of months at a time when Warcraft first came out, or even EverQuest. I remember they used to call it Evercracker or something. And uh, I, I just don't know that we you know we're going to hit that note every single. You know, it doesn't matter how much money you pour into a game, or or what what bannerhead you you put it under, Star Wars or or any other you know sort of popular legacy cultural icon that you you know it's it's uh, you know the, the players have become a little jaded, or they've already been through that, or they've already had that experience, and it's unlikely that they're going to be able to recapture that, and the programmers, or the designers, no matter how talented they are, are going to have a difficult time recreating it.
2: Yeah, I think there's a there's sort of a shared responsibility here between the player, the developer, and the publisher. So, um, you know, on one hand, yes, sometimes it's unfair of, of what we're coming to expect from certain games, especially when they come from beloved vaunted developers like blizzard you know we, we have a very high expectation um because it's who they are it's what they do um but they also there's also some responsibility on their part as well I, I look to somebody like bioware um and i think of the the heavy marketing machine that churns for them before any mass effect game or before any dragon age game is going to come out so there's a lot of talking there's a lot of building up um and they they get you they get the expectations rising and rising and rising because they're constantly, they're constantly talking about it, about how amazing their game is going to be and here are the reasons why. And so when they, when it comes time for the game to come out and, you know, BioWare has said, for example, hey, Mass Effect 3 is going to, you know, have so many incredible endings based on the things that you did before that. And then when it comes out and, Essentially, it feels like it really just has three different endings that you can get. There's a lot of, you know, there's a there's a lot of disappointments surrounding that kind of thing. So, um, in that sense, Bioware is sort of responsible for the way that expectation has been has been set because they were part of that that feedback loop. And, uh, you know, and the same thing with Diablo three and Blizzard. And I think Blizzard, a, a lot of the the hate too comes from things that sort of exist outside of. Um, the the quality of the game. So, for example, you now have um, Blizzard, who in the past seemed to embody everything PC gamers loved, suddenly became everything PC gamers hate because they had the online-only requirement. And they had suddenly an auction house where you spent real money on things to make you more powerful in-game. And, and suddenly you have a game that people, you know, a developer people used to love. Suddenly they're doing things that embody everything that gamers nowadays hate. And so um, a, a lot of people's feelings for, for those kinds of business decisions also crept into their feelings about the quality of the game itself. We've gotten to the point where it's almost impossible to to separate those things um, for certain communities.
0: Well, like I said, I, I, I found The Secret World's business model objectionable, and that's why I didn't play it. So, yep. you know, even here, that's, that's why it happens. I um, want well, to move on to Guild Wars 2. You, you guys actually gave this your RPG of the Year. Yeah, um, um, I thought that was pretty big. And I think the last time you guys did that with an MMO was World of Warcraft.
2: We did give World of Warcraft Game of the Year overall back in the year it was released. Was it 1994? I think. I believe so. Um, and that was that's pretty amazing when you think of it in and of itself because that was the year Half Life Two came out. That was the year Halo Two came out. So you know, giving World of Warcraft Game of the Year is a, a pretty big deal. Um, but, uh, Guild Wars 2, um, we did, it was a Game of the Year nominee, and we did give that RPG of the Year, and I think it was really well-deserved. Um, I think that, um, what that game does isn't, it, it doesn't redefine the genre, um, as a whole, so much as it redefines the individual elements that we associate with the genre. So they, they didn't, I think in, in some, in some ways, The Secret World was a more daring game. But on the other hand, ArenaNet wasn't content to simply say with every aspect of Guild Wars 2, well, this is just the way MMOs do it, so that's what we're going to do too. Um, I think they were really ballsy and saying, you know, why do we have to have a quest log? Why is that a thing? And so I think they were really ballsy in just saying, well, you don't have to have it. Let's just remove it. Let's make it part of the way you, you interact with the map. Let's make it, you know, let's let's just move, you know, move the map and the quest log together and make them the same thing. And that's really interesting to me. It may not have changed the overall, um, the overall thrust of the game when compared to other MMOs, but because they took those individual elements and rethought all of them and said, hey, why does it have to be that way? Is that really what works you know and and I think that's what makes that game so incredibly
0: successful. yeah, I think they just recently announced that they passed three million or four million in sales, yeah. which is i mean that is easily the highest for an m m o since the launch of Wow, so that is a an incredibly successful game um I have to say i actually i was I was on the fence about Guild Wars two. Um, when I saw a bunch of our guildmates were coming into that game, droves of them were coming into that game. <laughs> uh, people who had retired from, the, you know, MMOs, you know, in years past, uh, yeah. just just flocked back for Guild Wars Two. I was oh, yeah. still, I was still in up out of the game. ground, dusting yes. themselves off. There, there was like a horde of undead. I was, was on the fence about it. Um, your review is actually what pushed me over the top into buying it. Oh, uh, gosh. And oh, there you go so i'm i'm going to blame you i actually i'm not a huge fan of guild wars 2 um, but it's oh, not comes out. but it's not for it's not for, any, <laughs> it's not for anything you did um, guild wars 2 sort of galvanized something for me that was a problem that started creeping into me with the star wars the old republic i love that bioware and ArenaNet attempted to do you know the personal the story, the quest, you know, your class quest, or it's your race quest in Guild Wars 2. I love that they did that, but for me, those two things just highlight all the other crap you have to do in an MMO. (laughs) Especially the Old Republic. The class quest is so much better written than the specific planet quests, so they have their highs and lows, but the class class quests I've done so far um, have been pretty consistently good throughout. And it just highlights all that other garbage you have to do. I just want to continue with the class quest, but I can't because my level is too low now. So now, yeah. you know, in Guild Wars, I've got to go, you know, find another heart, do a bunch of things, clear another map. And um, and I think it's, I mean, the game is, I can look at it and see it's unquestionably good, but they put that, cl- that quest in there, and I want to do that quest, and it just it makes the other parts seem like they're in the way to me. It's like filler, like packing peanuts yeah and 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 i think and it's unfair to the games because they're both really well done um that all that other stuff but it is i mean it's they gave me this this awesome sort of single player experience but then all that other stuff just it, it feels like filler it feels like it's in the way um but that's just that's just my 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 preference
2: no, I totally get it. It's it's tricky for a for a developer that's making an MMO because they want to give you a story, but they also want to give you a reason to explore, and they want to push you to see the content. Because how 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 much would it suck if you're a developer and everybody just wants to go through the story, and when they're done, they're done, and yet you have this incredible huge world filled with stuff to do outside of it, and then nobody gets to see it.
0: Yeah, that would um, especially since the world of of Guild Two is so large. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, they've got those, I call them Grand Theft Auto-style achievements, you know. Grand Theft Auto 4 had an achievement, you know, if you kick 200 pigeons. Uh, (laughs) I worked on that for a long, long time. Oh, my God. Uh, Because it was there, and I'm like, that sounds like a huge waste of time. I'll do it. (laughs) That's That's how I am. That's one of the reasons Guild Wars 2 scares the crap out of me, too, because every map to unlock and there's a little progress indicator that tells you how much of the world you've done. And I'm like, Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. This game
2: fully, I I kicked so many soccer balls Mm -hmm. for the same reason. Just like, Oh, I'm going to get an achievement. If I kick a soccer ball 500 times or something like that, it's like, so that's what I did.
0: Yeah. And the the most, the most addictive game I ever played for that was actually the saboteur. It, It literally broke my heart that EA killed pandemic like a month after that game came out. Um, because for me, that game you know it was, it was basically a combination of Grand Theft Auto and Assassin's Creed, and I liked it better than either of those series. I liked that game, but I was going around you know I was you know dismantling every German encampment in the game, and you know the the zones would go from black and white to color, and it was awesome. there were so many of them that you would never have gotten to through the game's story that you know, I finished the story, and like fifty hours later i 'm still unlocking them i'm like I've got to get them all. <laughs> All right, that's uh, I think we've touched on those those games enough. Uh, one thing I want you know you reviewed you know the four biggest MMO releases of the last year. Since you reviewed them, three of those games have changed their business models. Um, Star Wars launched in December, announced in August that it was going free to play, and actually did it in November. Terra launched in May, announced just this month, January that it was going free to play next month in February, and the Secret World. Launched in July and announced and implemented in December that it was going by to play uh, the Guild Wars Two model. Yeah. Um, do you think with the massive, massive, sustained success of WoW, you know, they still have 10 million subscribers that they've killed the subscription MMO for everybody else?
2: Pretty much. I mean,
0: Blizzard, Blizzard's an
2: exception to every single rule in existence because they can do whatever whatever the hell they want, and people are going to throw money at them, and they're going to make all that money. And so they they get to sort of exist outside of the rules every other developer and publisher has to live by. Um, I'm actually surprised that... Because I I really did think that Star Wars The Old Republic would be the last major MMO to be released with the old-fashioned model. I really did think that that was going to be the case. And so when games continued to come out like The Secret World, that were asking for money up front as well as a, susp- uh, a monthly subscription. I was actually really surprised that that game and Terra and, and all those others still continued with the old business model because I I just presumed that Star Wars being Star Wars would be the last
0: the last of a dying breed. Um, uh, so I was, I was actually really surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had it because of EA's hubris, I think. Um, well,
2: sure. I mean, and, and besides, they can assume probably rightfully so, that, hey, it's Star Wars, it's an MMO, it's the most expensive game ever made, hey, we're throwing money at it. Um, and, and that is indeed what happened up front. Um, so, so it, but I, it,
0: it was successful in doing a, a great job of killing our wall branch. Um, <laughs> they all went to... Yeah. Well, some of them went to Rift before that, but then the rest of them went to Star Wars, and our wall branch pretty much died at that point. Yeah. Um, it is. Which
1: is kind of amazing, considering how big WoW is. It is,
0: but, you know, it's old. We do new stuff now. Um, you know, MMOs, you know, Wizardry Online is free-to-play. That came out yesterday, I believe, if you can get in. Um,
2: yeah, good luck with that.
0: Uh, Neverwinter will be free-to-play. That's going to open beta soon. We don't know what Elder Scrolls Online is doing yet, but, you know, MMOs are moving away from the subscription model. They're going free-to-play or buy-to-play. Uh, you know, like Guild Wars, you pay $60 once and then you're done. Uh, wow. And it's, it's sort of interesting that, you know, MMOs used to be the huge money sinks, and now, in some ways, if if you want them to be affordable, they can be affordable to you. Whereas, you know, single-player or multiplayer non-MMO games are moving to paid content over time. Yeah. Um, you know, didn't one of the, the Call of Duties games have a subscription service at one point?
2: Yeah, Battlefield has, uh, you know, a service like that, even Gears. I mean, there there are a couple... You know, there are several games that sort of have that, you know, buy a pass and get all the upcoming DLC for free kind of thing, or get uh, get multiplayer perks that other players don't necessarily get. Um, I, I actually am very uncomfortable with the idea of paying money for a game and then spending money for a service that allows me to continue to get the most out of that game. I think that's very very strange and and very. Materialistic, But on the other hand, enough people buy it to make that kind of business model viable. So who am I to question it, I guess?
0: Well, and, you know, there's there's some that I think work and some that don't. Well, not in terms of work, in terms of success or sales for the publisher, just in terms of what's good for the gamer. Like Mass Effect 3, you know, they took some, some backlash before release because they were adding multiplayer to a single-player game. Um, that's never... That's never popular, but I thought the multiplayer in Mass Effect 3 was actually really good, as far, good yeah. as far as horde mode goes. And I like what Bioware did. The single-player content they're adding to that game costs money, but the multiplayer stuff they've added has all been free, so they're not fracturing their player base. I don't play the, the online shooters the Call of Duties anymore, but you know, I've got friends that do, and they all feel like whenever a new mul- map Pack comes out, they have to buy it. Because if, you know, two of their friends buy it and they don't, well, then all of a sudden Call of Duty night is ruined because their two friends are going to be queued up on the new maps and they can't go with them. Yep. Um, and I think that, you know, I think it's something, you know, Tom McShay on your podcast would say eventually is going to come back to bite publishers in the ass. But I don't know that it's ever actually going to happen until people stop buying the damn things. I'm surprised that, I mean, to me,
2: it's, it's probably not going to happen at this stage, at least not... There's not going to be massive numbers that revolt or anything like that. Um, I mean, Capcom right now is a is a popular target among gamers for for attacks for their their um, DLC focused business models. But clearly, they're still making money, or they wouldn't continue to do it. Um, and when you consider that they're probably the worst of the lot in that regard, um, I don't know that there's really nothing we can do except speak with our dollars. Um, but until there are enough dollars involved, I don't think publishers are really going to care so much about what consumers at large think, because apparently we we continue to fork over the cash.
0: Yes, we do. Uh, yeah, speaking of Capcom, it'll be, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what they do with the next Resident Evil game, considering that the last one was just savaged in Ugh. online reviews, but you know it sold like hotcakes and. Um according to the feedback series you guys run on GameSpot, people complain about the Resident Evil Six review in every other review. So
2: Yeah, they certainly do. Um and and it's interesting. I mean that game sold well, but I you know, I think we've all gotten to the point where we should know that a game's quality isn't necessarily an indicator of how successful it will be, um and and vice versa. So there are plenty of successful games that sell well. For God's sake, Duke Nukem Forever sold fairly well. So you know tons of people more more people listen to i don't know some some starlet on the radio that has no no musical talent more than they listen to worthwhile bands and, and so on and so forth um same is true in film tons of people go and see transformers too um and it doesn't seem to bother them that it's crappy so it's 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 one Hang of those into things
1: that. <laughs> so i think
2: i mean i don't know like um a review. I get a lot of people asking me, you know, you know, coming to me saying, "Well, you know, you gave that game a low score, but it's really successful." So, ha ha ha. Well, what, what exactly does that mean? People buy crappy stuff all the time, and <laughs> sometimes they like crappy stuff. I'll be the first person to say sometimes I like something that's pretty crappy, um, but I'm I'm able to tell the difference between something that I like and something that's something that's good. If that makes any sense, I like things sometimes that aren't very good, um, sure. but I'm I'm still capable of telling the difference between something that's good and something that I like.
0: Yeah, I, I watched Human Target on Fox. <laughs> that show was objectively bad.
2: I enjoyed it anyway. Oh
1: my god.
2: Oh god. I mean, there there are games that I that I know objectively aren't that good, and yet I you know I, I still play them. Um, and still get enjoyment out of them, even though I wouldn't necessarily recommend them to anybody else. I mean, when people talk about Dynasty Warriors, for example, you know, if they talk about you know that they enjoy playing it, I totally get it. You know, and I totally get why you would enjoy playing that. But I also think it's terrible. <laughs> but uh, but I could even see myself sitting down and playing an hour of Dynasty Warriors because it's it's sort of the ultimate power trip. One swipe of your sword, and you're killing twenty five dudes at a time. So I, I get the the appeal. Still bad, <laughs> but I but I totally get the appeal. I mean, some of my free time gaming. Oh my lord! I played. Uh, I mean, I would. I played Dante's Inferno, which really wasn't that bad. But I played Dante's Inferno from beginning to end, not because I thought it was the best use of my time or the best game to be playing at that time, but because it was just a pe- like it was shallow and. Appealing and easy to get through, and I got I got that out of it, and, and that's what I needed at that time. But I wouldn't have said to anybody else, go out and buy Dante's Inferno. Well, I mean that logic explains half the movies I watch. Uh,
1: yeah. Well,
2: <laughs> there's nothing wrong with. I, I mean, I, I said this yesterday. I don't know if you saw this um, on Twitter. Jonathan Blow, the creator of Braid, and uh, the, the the developer making The Witness, um, sort of tweeted something that got a lot of people talking, which was. Um, you know, hey, I can't. You know, I I'll paraphrase, which is essentially, hey, I can't believe that these games that I think are, are the equivalent of dog food, you know, are getting critical praise when um, there are people like me who are chefs out there um, creating stuff that's actually really you know worthwhile. And it was it was very you know, it, it, there's a lot of hubris that goes into that kind of statement, right? Um, Jonathan Blow is certainly known for.
0: I mean, that's um, being a...
2: outspoken.
0: That's the that's the same thing that that Tommy uh, friends said in Indie Game the movie, um, you know, right. while they were making Super Meat Boy, you know, these publishers are all making games that are shit, and I don't understand why people are playing them. Um,
2: but it, there really is something there. I think that if if a goal of a game is to provide you pleasure, and that's what you get out of it, then why why isn't that worthwhile? Um, it, it reminds me of uh, there's a, a famous. Um, Movie critic Pauline kale who uh, who wrote um, so few so few movies are are great art that if you can't also appreciate great trash, then why would you be interested at all? And <laughs> well, and
0: that, you know, I Rod, love that that's, that's a fantastic quote, and it actually leads to something I wanted to ask you way earlier, but completely forgot about. Um, you know, I was reading an interview with Roger Ebert once, and someone was asking why he gave some objectively bad movie a high score, and he said that he's not out there comparing every movie to Citizen Kane. Um, You know, his score is based on whether or not the movie accomplished what it was, whether or not he felt the movie really accomplished what it was trying to accomplish. You know, unless what it was trying to accomplish was truly objectionable. So, you know, a bad movie can still be, you know, a great movie if it does everything that it wanted to do in the right way. And that could be sort of the same way with, you know, video game, and I think that's the way I take a lot of indie games nowadays because, obviously, they don't look like Mass Effect 3. Super Meat Boy doesn't look like Mass Effect 3, but Super Meat Boy sure plays like, you know, one of the best platformers in the world, and it it, it definitely accomplished exactly what it wanted to, and I think, like, you know, a game like Saints Row the Third that you may not want to play in front of your wife or your mother... Um, definitely accomplishes most of what it wants to accomplish, whereas Lollipop Chainsaw, on the other hand, which I think they wanted to be sort of satirical on, you know, the super objectification in video games, sort of fell flat on its face in that way.
2: Sure. Um, it, it, it sort of reminds me of the difference between my favorite game of 2010 was Vanquish, right? So uh, I love that game a lot, but there's nothing art about it. There's nothing about that game that I would consider to be an art or that, I mean, I think all games are art, but there's nothing about that game that I would say, this is what I think that in terms of emotional impact that games should aspire to or anything. It was just the most super fun game I had played in forever. And then my favorite game of 2012 was Journey, um, a very, very different kind of experience. And I don't want every game to be Journey, and I don't want every game to be Vanquish. I want... Everybody to know it is, know what it is that they want to make, and then go out and make that. Because I think there's room for all of this stuff. I don't think every game needs to be Braid. Um, and I think it's okay for a game to be the new DMC. And I think it's okay for a game to just be a little trifle. Um, sure. You know, I like that. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't like the idea that there has to be some kind of tastemaker up on high telling us what it is that we're allowed to love. I mean, I'm a critic, and and you know, part of what I do for a living is I say whether something's bad or not, or whether something's good or not, or worth your while. So to a certain extent, I, I suppose I am sort of a self-styled tastemaker, even though I don't really see it that way. Um, but I think it's okay for a game to just do what it tries to do. It is sort of like what Rod, Roger Ebert says. You know, did it did it do well what it was trying to do? Um, but I also think sometimes it's okay to ask yourself: Is what it was trying to do worthwhile in the first place? You know, if I, I read not so long ago about this this mobile game that was a soda drinking simulator, and the first thing I thought to myself is: Is that really a worthwhile creative effort for you? <laughs> so, I, so I think it is okay to ask: Is what this game trying to do? Um, worthy in and of itself, and if if you can say yes to that, then you go on to the second part, which is like, did it did it really achieve what it what it tried to do, and do we really understand what it was trying to do? Um, sometimes it's hard to tell. Like sometimes games are such messes that you can't even tell what it was they were trying to
0: accomplish. <laughs> yeah. Right? So. Yeah. Like Resident Evil Six.
2: <laughs> that game is. I will say this. Um, you know, there's something to be said about. You know, when people say they think that game is actually pretty good, I I totally get it. Um, You know, it's the same thing, like, Dragon's Dogma was one of my favorite games last year. When people say they hate it, I get it. Like, I can get why somebody would hate that as much as I can get why somebody would love Resident Evil 6. Um, But I I do think that game had an incredible identity crisis. It didn't know what it wanted to be, and by trying to be so many things to so many people all at one time, it, it, it didn't have, um, it didn't have anything to say, it didn't set out to do anything except be what every other game had already been, so, you know, what is the identity of that game? I don't think it really has one.
0: Yeah, and if if Capcom made a, a PC version of Dragon's Dogma, I would buy four copies. Yeah, um, I
2: I'm totally, I have this incredible weakness for games that are very cohesive, in everything that they try to do, and that's very hard for a AAA game. That's very hard for like a game that has a bunch of people working on it. So the more people working on a game, the harder it is for it to be a cohesive experience, and the more important it is for that that director of the game to really have a hand in everything. But you get you get games like I think of Bastion as a great example. Of this certainly Journey is a fantastic example of this of a game that knows exactly what it is. And every single thing that it does is focused on delivering that one cohesive experience. Um, I'm a real sucker for games that get that right. And there there aren't a whole lot of games that, that get that right. Again, because the more money goes into it, the more hands are in that pot, and the more they're trying to,
0: to make as many people happy as possible. Now, you mentioned Bastion, so I'm going to ask this question. Um, sure. Sure. You know, quite famously, uh, Eric Walpaw and Chet Falizek, you know, Old Man Murray video game commentary website. Now they work at Valve, um, Portal, oh, yeah. Portal 2, Left For Dead. And, you know, from your neck of the woods, Greg Kasavin was a reviewer at, at GameSpot, doing largely RPGs like you do. Um, left briefly to do uh, some Command & Conquer games, and then with Supergiant, you know, he was the creative director on Bastion. Has yeah. the other side of the industry been something that you've, Tried to get into before?
2: It's not something I've tried to get into, but it's certainly something I'm interested in. And it's it's worth pointing out that Eric Wolpa wrote for GameSpot as well. Um so we've had uh people from GameSpot move on and do really interesting things. Greg is one of them. Um we've certainly had people leave and be in less creative endeavors elsewhere in the industry, such as uh folks that have gone into, you know, PR and marketing and things like that. But uh yeah it's it's definitely something i'd be interested in and I actually have all these ideas for games floating around in my head that maybe one day they'll 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 get to be made um, in fact i i've been trying to familiarize myself somewhat with certain game creation tools um, such as um, such as suddenly a bunch of ones that i 've completely forgotten their names because i 'm getting tired um, Ian, but, Ian, <laughs> unity yeah. exactly unity is exactly what I was thinking of um which is a a, a pretty powerful tool. So I've been trying to familiarize myself with some of these tools that make it very easy to, uh, to to sort of bring your, your ideas to life. The problem again um, is time. You know, where do I find the time to, to, uh, to really do something interesting. I mean, right now it's just the learning stage. Um, And unfortunately all of these ideas I have are far beyond um, my ability to sit down as one individual and do something with it. But if I can come up with a small idea and see how it goes. I'd love to be able to to learn more, um, and to to maybe make my uh, my creative voice heard in different ways in the industry. But uh, that's that's not something that I'm actively pursuing for for the time. I'm I'm very happy writing about games and writing about games for Gamespot. I love what I do.
0: Okay, then I won't claim you heard it here first. Kevin Van Ord's Vanquish <laughs> Two coming in 2014. <laughs> oh um, my lord! <laughs> um,
3: actually, that kind of leads me to my my. A question sprung to mind, Kevin. If you don't mind, maybe I should have asked sure. you as farther as beginning. And and uh, I don't know how tired you're going. If we're going to, you know, put you into a coma here, um, how did you? How long you've been doing this? And, and how did you get your start?
2: That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I've been at Gamespot for uh, six and a half years or so. Um, before that, I was freelancing here and there. Uh, well, I'll go back to the beginning. I'll I'll go back at the beginning and work forward rather than start now and work back because I think that works easier. Um, so for a long time, I was just a game fan. So, um, for, you know, I went to college to study music and after that, um, I did some musical stuff, but ultimately I landed in the hotel industry. And so I was working in hotels, um, but always as a, as a game fan, I loved games from the very beginning. And, um, at some point when I was, I was living in the, the wall, the Washington DC area um, at, at some point, I, I sort of started becoming a, a, a major GameSpot user and ultimately became uh, part of their moderation team. And, and during this time, I was, uh, I was just writing reader reviews for fun. Um, I, I love the written word, I love games, and so it seems sort of obvious to bring those two things together. And so I, I wrote a lot of reader reviews at GameSpot, and ultimately, as, as somebody who frequented the forums a lot, um i stumbled upon some other people who had started a startup website that at the time was called inside gamer online and so i said hey you mind if i i write for you guys and they're like sure go ahead i mean there was no pay involved or anything it was basically just uh hey a bunch of cool guys writing writing game reviews for a, for a website sure um but uh in in time um the site grew a little bit it became known as um amped igo because it was bought by somebody i forget who and then uh later on after i had left became known as gamer 2.0 before finally just uh you know going going away for good but uh during that time um i uh, i had sent uh a, a request to to freelance to gamespy Um, I I sent it to Sterling McGarty, who was at at GameSpy at the time, and I didn't hear for the longest time, and then suddenly out of the blue, I got an email back saying, yes, we'd very much like you to review a game, and here's your first assignment. So my very first paid review was, as a freelancer um, for GameSpy, I wrote the uh, review for an Xbox game called Crime Life Gang Wars. Um, And I don't know if you remember that game, but it was sort of a GTA-esque game featuring... Um, Eminem's Rap Posse. Okay, which was called D12. So the very,
1: yeah,
2: the very first game I reviewed was a one-star review of that game for GameSpy, <laughs> and and so at the time I was doing three things at once, gaming-wise, and uh, I I moved on from hotels for because at the same time I was still trying to make money. Um, so I moved out of hotels and I was working um for a company that that provided banking services at this point. But uh, during that time, I was uh, moderating in the GameSpot forums, I was writing for Inside Gamer Online, and then I started freelancing for GameSpy. So I I did stuff for GameSpy for about a year, I would say. Um, A lot of that stuff was portable, licensed games, like um, movie-based games. So like Monster House and Barnyard, and and stuff like that would come my way, and I happily reviewed it. The highest score I ever gave a game at GameSpy was three and a half out of five stars. Wow. So that kind of gives you an idea that I wasn't exactly, you know, drowning in high-quality stuff or anything. (laughs) But it was a great way to get involved in the industry, and and luckily there was no crossover. I could continue doing what I was doing for Inside Gamer Online because I was writing – almost exclusively about PC games there, and everything I was doing for GameSpot was almost all handheld um, with some console games here and there. But uh, out of the blue, I got a call from GameSpot, and this would have been in 2006, and they said, uh, hey, we've got this tournament coordinator position. Would you be interested in applying? And at the time, I was living in Maryland, and I said, well, F yeah. So they flew me out to San Francisco. It's the first time I had ever been to San Francisco um, was to apply for the job here. And so I had an interview, and from the very beginning, he said, "Um, by the way, I hope you know that we really, really want you for this position. So this is just a formality. It's like, really? Okay. So I came out. um, I flew back on a red eye. Um, I only took one day off of work for this. So I took a day off of work. I flew out. I brought the red eye back so I could go to work the next day. And a few days later, I got the contract in the mail. And... You know, I had to make a big decision whether or not I was ready to leave my life behind and start a new one in California. And obviously, I did. So right. it was very scary and exciting and interesting, and I came out here to be tournament coordinator, um, but that didn't last very long because I transitioned into editorial and the
0: rest is history. So. Wow. Oh, thank wow. you for sharing that. Yeah,
1: well, thank you. Act, That's very or, thrilling. I actually, I actually
0: pulled up your review for Crime Life Gang Wars. Uh, while you're talking, <laughs> and,
2: yeah. <laughs> if you don't
0: mind, I'd like to read the first line of it. It's pretty damning for the game. Oh, God, okay. There are a multitude of reasons why kids should avoid the gangster lifestyle. Although Grand Theft Auto Clone Crime Life Gang Wars makes a compelling argument that the best reason to stay off the streets is that they're just so boring. <laughs>
1: <laughs> awesome. I mean,
0: that, that very much fits your lifestyle, that last part. Yeah, the best reason to stay off the streets is just so boring. That... That is clearly a Kevin Van Org review of a bad game.
2: You know, I'm a I'm I'm big on the gangster lifestyle. I've uh, <laughs> I've I've often looked to that. And what's interesting is the neighborhood I live in in uh, San Francisco is is probably the one most likely to uh, fall into that category.
0: So
1: that's
0: yeah. Um we're getting very near the end here, I don't wanna keep well, it Well, Can
1: I ask a quick question? Sure. I've been I'm here for long as you
0: can
1: I've been dying to ask this. I hope you don't mind, Kevin, but... Don't ask anything. Um Okay. Um, out of all the games you played, which has been the one that you've loved the most, that you've just fallen in love with?
2: Oh, so uh, that's kind of easy. The Longest Journey is my yeah? favorite of all time. Really? Yeah, for a lot of reasons. Um, it's, it's the reason, too, that I sort of fell in love with Funcom a long time ago. Um, they made... My favorite game of all time, which is The Longest Journey, um, a game I love with with passion that you can't know. And they then made my favorite MMO of all time, which is Anarchy Online. And as, as we talked about before, that game um, launched in terrible condition. But um, it became something very, very special. And it became something that we don't really see anymore, which is a game of incredible complexity and depth, where there's a lot of reward for tinkering with its systems and tinkering with its its skill set up. And it just had a lot of ways to make your character unique. And, um, so I, so I sort of fell in love with Funcom. Unfortunately, they have this tendency to release broken things, but, um, yeah. they are, they are responsible for two of my favorite games of all time. But the, the, longest journey is very special to me. American McGee's Alice is very special to me.
0: So then um, did you like Dreamfall? I, was, I did love I was, Dreamfall. I was a huge fan of Dreamfall. And, um, obviously you know that, uh, the longest journey chapters, or Dreamfall chapters, whatever they're calling it, the the next stage in that saga is currently in development.
2: Yeah, and I'm actually um in you know I've actually been talking with um with the director that with Ragnar Tornquist, and uh, hoping that I can get some stuff for GameSpot for uh, Dreamfall chapters that would be exclusive to us if I'm lucky. Um, because I'm I'm really interested. If I if I got to uh, follow my dream job, I have two sort of dream jobs. If I got to work in the industry and just do whatever I wanted, um, I would either um, help write the script or compose music for Dreamfall or for the for the new chapters and, and continue that story, or I would go off to uh, Ubisoft Montreal and be part of the Assassin's Creed series. So those are my sort of my two industry uh, dreams: is to do one or the other.
0: No, I, well, was... I was going. I was talking to a friend just a couple of weeks ago. You mentioned Ragnar Tornquist. Um, I just this as an aside, I think that is the most badass name in human history. Oh I, hell think, yeah. I think if you know the the Duke Nukem three D had been Ragnar Tornquist three D, it would have crushed <laughs> it would have crushed Quake. That that so name true. is just awesome. Well, so, I was
1: going so to ask you, um, Kevin too. You were a music major in college. Yeah. So, I know that music is because I was a music major too, and that 's something you always have a love of music no how no matter how old you get but um, about gaming music, you know that would be kind of cool to see you get off into that um, area to com- do some original compositions for some games
2: yeah i 'd really like the the chance to do that. Um, it's sad though, um, and and this is where my age starts to show. So when I went, to, you know, I my first year in college was in 1990. So this is I'm 40 years old. So this was this was quite a long time ago. And and what's interesting is I went to college to study. Well, I studied violin performance and music composition. Um, I was a double major, and so. But at the time I went, it was at a very strange in-between time when technology was part, somewhat part of game composition but hadn't fully taken hold yet. So when I was writing, when I was composing music, I was still doing it in a very old-fashioned way. I was taking a pencil and a protractor and manuscript paper, and I was putting notes on a page. And, you know, now... Um most music is created without a composer ever picking up a pencil and putting it on a page. You know, it's it's all very digital and the sad part is that so much has changed since I was actively composing that there's a there's a there's a learning curve now in terms of learning all of the tools. And for the most part, I know most of those tools, but it's it's still a very um it's a very daunting kind of thing to imagine jumping in um and and making some video game music. Um, for the first time using all of these very expensive sort of electronic tools that we that right. we pretty much have to have now in order to make that happen.
1: See, I didn't even think about that. You know, I was just thinking uh, pen and paper type of composition, you know. Yeah, that yeah. is pretty daunting.
2: Composers now aren't just composers anymore. They're also performers um, because we essentially can take um, very realistic sounding um, sound samples and, and turn them into entire orchestras. Um, the problem with a lot of that stuff is that that the um, the tools, the, the programs, the 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 sound libraries are very very costly um, because it comes down not just to having the right software and the right um, the right machines to run the software, which is very CPU heavy, but also then to go out and buy. Sound Library, so for example, if I went out and bought the uh, the Vienna sound Library, um, that could cost me you know say four thousand dollars just for right. the instruments that doesn't even include the um, the software that that would actually be able to utilize all of that. So it's, it's, it's a super hard thing to get into because there's, there's, an, there's an upfront investment for the composer.
0: Now, at, at gotcha. the beginning of the show, I mentioned you were the host of the, the GameSpot Gameplay podcast, and one of my favorite parts of that of that show makes more sense now is the, the music quiz. Um, <laughs> for anybody that hasn't listened, the way I describe GameSpot gameplay to people is, um, if you've listened to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR, it's sort of that for video games. It's... It's it's a news quiz and you know one of the segments Kevin does is he plays clips of songs from various video games to the panelists and they have to you know guess what game it's from and I am I am so glad that I am not a fixture in the in the gaming industry that would be invited on the show because I would look like a jackass at that portion um you know, other than the the Halo theme you played in one episode, I don't think I would have gotten anything. You played some music from WoW in an episode. I played WoW for eight years. I still play WoW, and I wouldn't have gotten that one.
1: And you don't have the soundtrack. I do. I have it.
0: I just wouldn't have placed it because I've never heard it out of the context of the game. So I, it just it didn't yeah. click in my mind. And as soon as whoever, or as soon as you or whoever guessed that it was WoW, I'm like, well, duh. I know when that plays.
2: Well this it's it's funny because and, and somebody just on Twitter asked me this yesterday like you know how what do I feel about game music then to put in quotes versus game music now. Um, meaning like old console games that um, were very much, um, you know, you very much heard the same melodies over and over and over again. They were very catchy. So we all know what Mario sounds like and we all, you know, that kind of thing. Versus video game music now, which is a lot more concerned with atmosphere and um, sort of takes the cue from film composition um, in, in a certain sense because it's not just about, it's not about hummable melodies anymore, Right. Um, You could hear music that was probably very effective in its context when you played the game, but not necessarily recognize it um, outside of its context. So there have been changes in the way, you know, music is is made for games, in part because back in the day there was limited space on that cartridge. You know, there was only so much the technology could handle, Um, and so you had to write a very catchy melody that people were going to remember, but also something that was not going to get really tiresome and annoying when you heard it, you know. A million times in a row. So nowadays we've got you know full orchestras at our disposal and and you know all the disk space we need um, to to do whatever the composer wants to do. Um, so there's there's a very clear difference in the way music was composed then versus now. But I don't think there's any real disparity in quality. Um, it's only because we have the opportunity to do something different with with composition now than we did
0: before. All right. What's then your um? You go ahead, oh, sorry.
1: Thank you. What's your favorite uh, game soundtrack?
0: Oh, gosh.
2: Um, It it sometimes depends on when you ask. Um, Dreamfall um, is one of them. Dreamfall has an incredible soundtrack. Um, Assassin's Creed 2 is one of those games that you might uh, have me stating. Mega Man 2 might be a game that uh, I might say on a particular day when you ask me. Um, if you ask me today, I might say Deadly Premonition. So, nice. So uh, yeah, it, it sort of depends on uh, on my mood, on what it is that I'm I'm looking for. Shadow of the Colossus would probably be one of those games I'd put on my shortlist.
0: All right, um, let's move back into the MMOs a little bit here. Um, Do we have to? Yes, because okay. that's what our guild does. Um, <laughs> Wizardry Online came out yesterday. Neverwinter announced their closed beta dates, and Elder Scrolls just had beta signups. Um, you yeah. said you don't read a lot of pre-release coverage for games. Um, for Wizardry, Wizardry, there basically wasn't any. Um, oh, unless funny. unless you went to the, the hardcore MMO sites like MMORPG.com, they had some stuff. But I mean, have you looked at any of these games? I know you saw Elder Scrolls back at E3, but um, have you have you have you been following any of these games at all? In a
2: sense, um, I mean, I started playing Wizardry yesterday, or when I say playing, I put that in quotes. Um, I did have some, like, when the, when the game first went live, I had no trouble. Um, but when I, when I left the game and tried to re-log in, it took, it took a good ten minutes. And I thought it was actually really interesting that the game didn't have a built-in fail-safe, you know, a timeout, um, which, is, which is pretty rare. It just, it just, it hangs. That's all it does is it just it just hangs forever and ever and ever and ever and ever if you're trying to if it's trying to sign you into the login server it just it just stays there, um, which I thought was a really interesting <laughs> really interesting thing for that game to do, but uh, I finally did get in I was able to play the tutorial dungeon, and when I left um it just hung on the loading screen to send me back to town and I waited about fifteen minutes and it just stayed there so ultimately, I just shut the game down um I'm interested in that game a lot
0: I was I got into the beta, like, five, six weeks ago, and it actually crashed three times during the install process, uh, um, so I, I actually just gave up at that point. I was very interested in that game, and I, I'm not sure why. It's got the Wizardry name on it, even though it's not, you know, what we know from, like, Wizardry 7 and 8. Oh, uh, no, it's is one evil Yeah, Yeah, it's... it's, it's Sony and whoever, you know, they bought the name from SirTech, um, and they have the name, but it's its not that anymore. But, I mean, I do like some of the more hardcore aspects they have in it, like permadeath in certain modes and that kind of thing. Um, that would be really heartbreaking in certain situations, but, you know, it does look good in that way. Um, have you been looking at Neverwinter or Elder Scrolls at all, at least since, you know, what you saw at E3 for Elder Scrolls?
2: Well, I haven't seen Elder Scrolls since E3, but I'll, I'll be honest that my takeaway from, from that look at Elder Scrolls um, had me not caring anything about Elder Scrolls Online, and, uh, and that's what I mean by trying to avoid that, that expectation, because then when I see something, um, there, there's always some kind of like opinion built into that, that and, and unfortunately, like I said before, we don't ever allow that kind of thing to creep into the review process, but uh, I was certainly disappointed. Um, And,
0: you know, I remember um, I actually asked you about that on on Twitter um, at the time, and you gave me that response, and I was really disappointed because I I love Elder Scrolls, and um, the only reason I played WoW for as long as I did is because of all the things that WoW did right when it came out, my favorite is that Blizzard came into it with a world that already existed. Um, Azeroth existed in Warcraft 1, 2, and 3. Some of those Warcraft novels had come out before, you know, WoW was, you know, right. as a game. And, and I'm, not, I'm not ashamed to say I read them. Um, you know, with with EverQuest, Norath never really grabbed me because it seemed, as far as the world went, it always just felt shallow to me. Um, Dark Age of Camelot I played for a long time because I thought, as far as the, the realm versus realm combat, and that was, I thought it was sort of ahead of its time. Like Guild Wars is now like the pinnacle of that sort of thing. Um but I felt that the the lore in that game was shallow and, and Warcraft, you know, all the stuff they had made it feel so deep and Blizzard has done a great job of extending the story of that game and that's why I've been most excited about Elder Scrolls is because I played um you know, Daggerfall. I was like twelve or thirteen, um Morrowind, um Oblivion, Skyrim. I have my Steam login says that I have like two hundred and ten hours in Skyrim. Right. So, you know, I I just like Finally, someone's coming at me with another world that's not, you know, going to destroy my hopes and dreams like Lord of the Rings Online did. Um, That game's been out for seven years, and the party still hasn't gotten to Mordor, for crying out loud.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know what, Elder Scrolls, what was most interesting to me about that, I think, is is I, you know, because at E3, I'll, I'll tell you what the experience is kind of like. So we have an appointment like this, you know, it's you and... You know, maybe a dozen other press members, and they herd you into this dark room, and they give you the presentation, and they showed live gameplay. So they did show the the actual game being played. It wasn't just sometimes you'll go to something like that and you'll just see a bunch of trailers and canned footage or something. Um, but they actually showed the game in progress and and you know talked about it as it went. And and I think what was most interesting to me, well, the things that were interesting were for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that it looked like every other MMO ever made, and and I think. Uh, you know, I look at that and I think, okay, so these are guys that, that have been around the block. Um, but it really felt like a game being made in a vacuum. It was a game that felt old. Um, and as they talked about it, what they talked about sounded old. Um, and to give you an idea, um, one of the first things I asked was, well, how do you take the, uh, the freedom of a single-player Elder Scrolls experience and translate that into an online experience? And the the answer that he gave me was really telling because he talked about, oh, yeah, well, it's like, you know, in Skyrim, you go and do something and you get you get sidetracked and you go and do something else and then you just do what you want. So, for example, in Elder Scrolls Online, you might be going to finish a quest, um, but you might come across some, you know, some NPC over, over here down the road who will also have something to give to you to go and do. And that was the example they gave me. and And my my internal response is, oh, so you mean, like, every other single MMO that's ever been made. And, right. And, and that was their idea of how to take the freedom of Elder Scrolls and put that into an online scenario. And um, I, was, I was really disappointed by that. I, I felt like, you know, what I really saw, you know, and they talked a lot about the combat and how they were trying to make it feel sort of um, action-focused in real time. And uh, it wasn't nearly as interesting as, as what Terra does, and, and, uh, or even what Age of Conan does. And, and my whole thought during the entire process is, you're showing us a really, really old game. You know, I've, I've played EverQuest and EverQuest 2 already, and, and that's sort of what I was getting, getting out of it, was, um, you know, that they really didn't, aside from having the Elder Scrolls name, the game didn't have, but the game I saw didn't have any identity to it. Um, and that was the thing that really that really disappointed me as I was looking at something that that felt like it was being made by somebody who hadn 't played an MMO in five years
0: yeah and so. i don 't know if 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 the game has gotten better since then they did show it off to MMO sites, but their messaging around it has certainly gotten better um, over the last <laughs> several months so i'm still i 'm still excited because I want oh, to see yeah. what what 's in that world. Um, have you been looking at neverwinter at all? Um, not you really. Know, it's, it's coming out free to play, but I mean, it's made by, by A Perfect World and Cryptic. I mean, Cryptic made Champions Online, and I think they made Star Trek. Um, although you said you didn't much care for that one,
2: I didn't much care for Star Trek, and I, I was I, I was fine with Champions Online to an extent. I thought that was pretty good for what it was. Um, and of course, everybody you know, everybody loves uh, City of Heroes and City of Villains. So, um, you know, I, I love Never Winter Nights and Never Winter Nights too. So, you know, I certainly have, you know, I certainly have strong feelings about, uh, about Neverwinter and wanting it to be good. Um, my problem with Cryptic is it's, is the very nature of what it does. And I think as time has passed, um, I feel like generally the way they design games may be getting more and more obsolete. And what I mean by that is they have a very chunky way of making their worlds. When you play a Cryptic game, you're, you're very much playing um, a number of large levels all attached together by loading screens, rather than actually existing in a place that feels like a world. And I think that was very much evident in Star Trek Online, and even in Champions Online. Um, you know that you're—it's a really very segmented place. Um, to the extent where um, you know you you look at the number of channels that you can join in, in the game, and you know you you go into the world, and it's like oh, but I can I can also choose from twenty five other instances, and it's it's kind of how they they make their games is these very chunky sort of isolated um, you know levels that are attached together by loading screens rather than the sense of existing in a in a larger massive place, and so I wonder. If that's what Neverwinter is going to be like, and whether or not that's actually going to be to the benefit of of the game, I, I don't know the answer to that. Well, if
0: if it pulls, like if it pulls, you know, a bulk of its users from like former DDO players, um, for people who are staying with the Dungeons and Dragons license, I think that would work for them because that's pretty much how Dungeons and Dragons Online works. I mean, they don't have multiple instances of the of the main city zone like they did like Cryptic did in Champions, but I mean every single quest or zone or anything in, in DDO is instanced and instance and separate from from the main world. So right. um, if they're pulling from that user base, I think those people will be very familiar with it. Um, you know, that's it's kind of a funny. You mentioned that I went back and rewatched uh, those four reviews that. Rewatched watched and reread those four reviews you meant we talked about earlier, and you sort of said the same thing about Star Wars, the Old Republic is that each planet sort of felt like a big level rather than part of a whole
2: yeah and I'm okay with that on the on sort of a, a planet wide basis, like if it was if it was something like uh, Star Wars Galaxies, where each planet was sort of its own world, but then you flew off to another world and so on that's that's great. Um, but that really is how Old Republic came across, is even even the planet as a whole felt like one large level. And in turn, that was then segmented into a lot of, you know, a lot of areas that were just corridors. And so I felt like there was a real lost opportunity. Um, but I, I I also think it wasn't really a surprising thing, given the way Bioware also makes games. Because
0: Bioware doesn't it. make... Yeah, it fit in with, like, KOTOR and Mass Effect.
2: Right. I mean, Bioware doesn't really do a big world. Um, they don't do Skyrim. That's not how they look at at the the RPG space. They do something very different. They actually do, you know, sort of medium-sized levels that are separated, you know, again, by loading screens that, are, that, that sort of fit together either by, um, you know, some kind of overworld that allows you to move from place to place, and what they do is they try to use a consistent atmosphere to give you a sense of an overall world, as opposed to actually giving you a large
0: space to play in. All right, and then my, my last MMO-specific question. Um, Chris Roberts has been basically out of the games industry for a decade. Um, when he came back at you know, GDC and announced Star Citizen and his Kickstarter, I was thrilled because I am a huge Wing Commander fan. I I loved those games, but you know he's talking about Star Citizen with you know the Squadron 42 single player aspect, and then the Star Citizen MMO aspect. He's been out of the industry for ten years, as a you know an industry veteran observer as you are. Do you think he can honestly pull it off?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, and in fact, I think maybe he's in a better position than other than other folks would be. One thing I've found um, in as since I've been in the industry is is you see. Developers will get so involved on their one project, um, they get very focused, and they and it, it gets to the point where you don't see the forest for the trees. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of people that are making the games that we play, aren't really playing a lot of other games um, necessarily. Um, they're not necessarily seeing what the trends are because they're focused on one project for five years or four years or three years or you know whatever. And um, I think somebody like Chris Roberts, provided he gets the kind of cash he needs to do it, um, is in a really good position as as uh, somebody who knows how to make games but also has been outside of the industry, presumably just playing them for for this long, that maybe he's in the best position to be somebody who says, hey, there's something really great that we can do that isn't being done right now. Um, because he hasn't had to focus on one project for four years, um, to the exclusion of, of really knowing what other really great projects are, are being done at the same time.
0: <laughs> All right, and then I just have a couple other random questions here. You guys gave your game of the year to Journey, um, which I thought, which actually was pretty common this year. Journey was basically universally hailed as fantastic. I think your reader's choice winner was Far Cry 3. It was. Could they be more different um no they
2: they're very, very different games um, in in a sense, that's I think the wonder of of gaming right now is that there's so much diversity and variety and and you know there's a certain you know nostalgic segment out there that that talks about how oh modern games just will never be what they used to be, and how how great um you know old games are compared to new games and Modern games are just all alike. Everything's just a, you know, everything's just a Call of Duty clone, and so on and so forth. And and I want to shake people and say, do you not see that there is so much more diversity now than there has ever been in games? And yes, you, you do run into the the problems where you know the biggest AAA games you know often play uh, you know play cat and mouse with each other, and, and they they try to all be you know the same thing over and over again. And you certainly see that. Um, And you see that because those are the the games that get, you know, the most attention and and get the most sales and have the most money, you know, sort of thrown at them. But uh, there's actually, I mean, I dare you to pull up Steam today and look at whatever 20 games are listed as the most recently released games and tell me that there is no diversity. I mean, I think it would be impossible um, for you to claim that there is no diversity and in, in, in what's going on right now, and how amazing that we live in a time where Far Cry Three and Journey can come out in the same year and both be critically acclaimed for doing what they do so well—that's um, that's pretty awesome to me. That I don't have to choose.
0: Well, I, I think when people look back, there's there's some rose colored glasses going on there too, because um, you know the one that they talk about, you know, you know. These days, it's just sequels over and over and over again, and um, most of the cartridges on my my shelf for my SNES game have a two or a three or a four after the title. Uh, right. There were there's just as many sequels back then. I mean, it's not like Madden. You know, EA has only been releasing Madden every year since 2000. You know, it goes back to 92. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of rose colored glasses going on there. Now, I, I will say that you know, I think Square should have stopped making Final Fantasy games after six, but that's just <laughs> my personal opinion. Um is you know, my opinion is that Nino Cooney, which you just did a spoiler cast for, um, is what Final Fantasy should be rather than what Final Fantasy is. Uh
2: yeah, um, Nino Cooney is, is really fantastic, so
0: Yes, and anybody anybody who's never never listened to GameSpot gameplay, uh Kevin uh, got uh, Jim Sterling from Destructoid and Phil Collar from po- Polygon. Uh, they did a spoiler cast. Um, I shouldn't have to tell you what that means of Nino Cooney, Wrath of the White Witch. So if you have a PlayStation 3 and any interest at all in that game, it's, it's worth a listen, and you should definitely look into that game. Um, the previous episode of Gamespot Gameplay, I mentioned earlier, Jens Anderson from DC Universe Online, uh, the creative director of that game, was on. He talked a bit about their, um, I forget what they're called, the bases in the game. Um, you're a little home now since you're a superhero. You can have your superhero lair. Um, he talked about that. Uh, you guys should go check that out. Um, that's all I had for Kevin. Did uh, Lass or Roxy have anything else?
3: No, uh, I you didn't. I kind of asked my questions along the way as we were going. But uh, I did want to say, Kevin, you're, you're obviously a very, very busy guy, and I just wanted to express my appreciation um, uh, for Tallow and for Roxy and, and, and for the entire guild for, for spending this amount of time with us.
2: I, I just feel bad because I, I, I think sometimes, like, Fall in love with my own voice, and I just keep talking and talking. I I, I hope that I haven't uh, talked your ears off today.
3: And not at all. It's been a pleasure. I'm, I'm really, really, we're very pleased and, uh, and delighted you were you agreed to do this. Oh, yes. anytime. Um, I'll have fun.
0: Thank you, thank you very much. Um, the only reason I even thought to ask you is that um, you're one of the few people I follow on Twitter who actually responds when I send them stuff. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm um, speaking for myself. I'm just thrilled and excited. That um, you could join us tonight. And, you know, I was a little bit nervous, but I'm always nervous when we do these things.
0: You can ask the guys, yeah. Yeah. Recording yourself and putting it out there on the internet can be nerve wracking for somebody of your age, Roxy.
1: Oh, oh my I hate Lord.
0: Thank you. Oh, you so much. <laughs> yeah, he, he's going to pay for that one. Yes, yeah, he's gonna, oh, yes, he will. She's going to hurt me. Um, well that's 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 all we've got for tonight i, wanna, I really want to I really do I want to thank our guest Kevin Van Ord of GameSpot. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at uh, FiddleCub. I think you can follow him on Raptor of the gaming service the same name uh, FiddleCub. Um, you can check him out on GameSpot reviews all the time features all the time. He's the host of the GameSpot gameplay podcast, which um, is on our our featured podcast lists on our forum so you guys should already have the link to that. Um, if um, you any, only, if you only listen to one video game related podcast, make it three moves ahead. If you listen to two, add in GameStop gameplay. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, three moves ahead is strategy game podcast that I think is really good. I'm going to give it a plug right now. Anyway, um, Gaspar Games, Chris Taylor was just on, um, guest board games just laid off a bunch of their staff and are talking about pulling down their wild man Kickstarter project. And, you know, they've made total annihilation Supreme commander. Great, great gaming studio. So you should you guys should check that one out too. So game gameplay, uh, check that out with Kevin three moves ahead links on the forum. Um, that's all we have tonight. Uh, last and Roxy, give me a hail Noir and we'll sign off. Well, thanks again, Kevin. Hail and War. I, I
2: had a yes. great time. Um, Ask me on again. I'll, I'll come along, and I actually won't dominate the conversation next time. Well, that's well
1: maybe I'll have nerve enough to ask you something else. <laughs> <laughs> but well, thanks, guys. It was,
2: it was totally a pleasure.
1: Right, Thank
0: you, and uh, we're out.